welcome back to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Winesett. And I'm Max Frost. And our guest today is Dalibor Rohak, a recurring guest to the show, out with a new book. The book is called In Defense of Globalism. And it is indeed a defense of globalism. Dalibor is a scholar here at AEI where he focuses on European politics. And the book is extremely timely, uh, obviously because of what's going on in the UK, but also the future of Europe more broadly, developments in Poland and Hungary that kind of throw the future of the EU into doubt. Yeah, it also makes a good accompany episode to our previous one with Colin Duick in defense of nationalism. So a little competition of ideas here with AEI scholars. And we also talk about the ongoing events in the UK. Now they're gearing up for another election on December 12th. So we got his thoughts on that, and we learned a lot. We think you will too. So without further ado, here is Dalibor. Dalibor, thank you for coming back on Banter. Oh, thank you for having me. So globalism has become a bit of a bad word ever since probably for a long time, but especially the 2016 election. I remember Donald Trump ran a couple ads about Hillary and the globalist elites, and there's all the, the scary imagery, George Soros, that type of thing. You just came out with a book in defense yep. of globalism. You seem to want to rehabilitate the term. Rehabilitate the term. So, what does globalism mean to you? I understand globalism as the set of different institutions, organizations, treaties, informal platforms for cooperation between governments and other international actors. And what I try to do with the book is to push back against. Uh, nationalism, which has been gaining traction on the political right, both in America and also in Europe, also against uh, what I consider to be a naive uh, geopolitical realism that abstracts away from differences between different political regimes and the way they behave internationally, and show that uh, there is actually a very rich tradition on the political right among classical liberals and, 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 and conservative circles, particularly in Europe, which favors a fairly robust set of institutions underpinning cooperation between between governments. Another part of the argument is, is is trying to show that globalism or global governance or whatever you want to call it is not really a top-down imposition by unaccountable cosmopolitan elites, but is rather an ecosystem which does not always work perfectly, but which nonetheless responds to very practical needs of, of, of policymakers that have to do with the nature of the globalized economy. How popular is, I know a few years ago after Brexit, then everyone started talking about Frexit and, you know, whatever, the whole, the whole implosion of the European Union and the Eurozone. Is that now, I mean, now you don't hear so much about that. It seems like everybody's so focused on Britain that you don't hear much about the other European countries and kind of concerns about them leaving the EU. So has that kind of died down? It is true that um, the 2016 referendum has served as a sort of cautionary tale on the European continent. Um, if you go back to that period, you will see many populist, nationalist parties, political groups advocating the exit of their respective countries from the EU. Even in the, um, in the French presidential campaign, Marine Le Pen at some point was in favor of France exiting the euro, and that was met with such a panicked reaction on the part of the French public that she very quickly backtracked. And one and, and, and these days when you talk about when you talk to far right politicians in Europe, very few, if any, of them would advocate the exit of, of their respective country from the EU. If anything, they would say, Oh, we want to reform the EU and we are in favor of, of the membership of our country in the EU. They would have very vague ideas about how the EU should be reformed. But I think I think the sort of example of Brexit 
has, has, has dissuaded many from, from following in, in the UK's tracks. It's not accidental. I think it's becoming more and more apparent that that leaving a structure like the EU, which involves a very deep level of, of, of economic integration, does involve costs. And, and, and it was real trade-offs, really difficult choices that the British are trying to just postpone and, 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 and delay the, the, the day of reckoning. So that's, I think, the unintended consequence of Brexit, one that maybe Steve Bannon did not see coming. We're going to talk a little bit more about Brexit and the European mm-hmm. Union later, but for now, back on the topic of the book, you mentioned globalism is yep. not just a top-down, elitist-driven phenomenon, and there's a respected conservative tradition in favor of global yep. institutions. What do you think what, – what do you have in mind as like the golden age then or like emblematic figures of like of, glo- of globalism done right, let's say? I'm not sure if there was ever a golden age of anything. Um, I'm, I'm not one of those who would seek to idealize the past, but I think there is an intellectual error that people make. Uh, many of my conservative friends, I would argue, make who, who see the nation state as the natural endpoint of history. I'm referring to people like Yoram Hazoni, his famous book, The Virtue of Nationalism, sort of seeks to, to recreate the nation as some sort of organic extension of tribal bonds and, 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 and identities built around extended family. And, and that's a view that's completely ahistorical. And in reality, the nation state, as we know it in Europe, is largely the 19th century creation. It's a result of very explicit political projects. It was one of the founding fathers of, of, of a unified Italy who said that we've just created Italy. Now we have to create Italians. Yeah. And, 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 and so, so the real picture in Europe is, is a much messier one. And in the response to this nationalist movement of the 19th century, you had many, uh, people on the free market, right? Classical liberals who were rightly worried about the potential incompatibility of, of, of this continent of sovereign nation states and the principles of free enterprise and free trade. So in, in 1930s, as Europe was nearing this global conflict, you had uh, people meeting at the Lippmann Colloquium in Paris, uh, folks like Friedrich von Hayek and von Mises and, and, and Wilhelm Repke arguing that actually what was attuned to the European condition was was some form of international federal structure that would embed nation states. It would not destroy national identities, but it would uh, seek to restrain them and, 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 and sort of commit them to, to certain set of, of, of the rules of the game. And, uh, the EU today, to some extent, reflects that, 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 that classical liberal vision. Now, if I'm a Brexiteer sitting in, my village in the Cotswolds, yep. or I'm somewhere out in rural France. I'm a big Frexiteer, Fre- big Frexiteer, <laughs> Marine Le Pen supporter. And you know, what are the major points that you would say to convince me you should stick with the EU? It's working in your favor. Look, the world after the Second World War, I think, has stumbled upon something good. It's not just the EU, but it's this broader package of institutions created largely under American leadership. We can say that the European project is an outgrowth of the Marshall Plan and of this wholesale commitment of America to to Europe, which is whole and free and at peace. And and that institutional package, I think, needs to be updated and has its flaws, and especially the younger generation that might not remember the triumphant years of the 1990s has seen more the downside of, 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 of this institutional package than, than, its, than its virtues. But nonetheless, I think overall, it's a set of arrangements that has 
that has delivered and 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 that has uh, done a whole lot of good for humankind, including for 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 advanced industrialized economies of the West. I mean, France today does suffer from variety of structural problems, but arguably very few of those are due to its membership in the EU. I mean, sclerotic labor markets, overregulation, like these things actually are almost exclusively self-inflicted in individual European countries. They don't come from the dictat of Brussels, they come from 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 national policymakers. Do you think the peripheral countries though in the EU have a better case, like Italy and Greece, for example, have a lot of it seems to me warranted gripes with Germany, for example, because they can't really debase their like, – if, 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 if they were not in the euro, wouldn't it be easier for them to recover economically faster? That's an argument we've heard many times during um, the eurozone crisis. And I think in the short term, that argument has some currency, right? Like you can deal with, with these imbalances faster if you have control over your on, on monetary policy. But we are now – Ten years since the outbreak of the of of, of the debt crisis on, on Eurozone's periphery in, in Greece, and over ten years uh, there is enough wage and price flexibility to to go through the adjustment. So so insofar as there isn't much in terms of economic growth happening in places like Italy and Greece, I think looking for for the monetary explanation is is, is somewhat misleading. It's not the ECB, which is to be blamed for, again, the, the structural problems mm-hmm. in, these, in these economies. And look, uh, governments in these places did have a choice. There was a referendum in Greece in 2015, and Syriza uh, came with a very strongly sort of worded uh, sort of ultimatum almost to, 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 to the Troika of the European Commission, the ECB and, and the IMF, had the support of the, of the Greek public. But at the last minute, they sort of realized that leaving this arrangement would really entail significant economic costs. And paradoxically, it is the far left Syriza that has been running now a primary surpluses in Greece in, 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 in past couple of years. So, so it's interesting to see these reversals of fortune, so to speak. Yeah. I do want to get on to Brexit here shortly, but not only is that topical, we're also about exactly 30 years on from the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mm-hmm. There's an essay last weekend in the Financial Times just talking about Hungary. Yeah. I think the subtitle was something like, was it worth it? So, so, so my reaction to that essay, I mean, I read it. it he's a very eloquent writer and, and he's been making an argument of this kind for 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 a while. And I think it's an argument which I don't ultimately find convincing because he tries to single out Central and Eastern Europe as these cases where there was this rush to join the West and reform these countries to make them an imitation of Western liberal democracies. This is sort of story. And that has produced a backlash because Hungarians and Poles, they don't want to be a sort of imperfect copy of something else. They want to sort of charter their own trajectory throughout, throughout the world. But that doesn't really explain the fact that you have this populist, the nationalist wave like sweeping across democracies from Eastern Europe to, to America, right? So, 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 so singling out like post-communist transitions and saying that these countries did not follow the trajectory that, that me, Ivan Krastev or whoever would like to see, and that therefore explains the rise of Viktor Orban and Law and Justice Party. I, I just don't find that very compelling. And it also sort of implicitly assumes that there was some alternative path to follow. Whereas, um, like, you know, whatever you think about the state of Hungary and Poland today, uh, I think it's undeniable that, that these countries are in much better shape than, than any other country that tried to 
you know, do something else than follow the conventional wisdom of, you know, Washington consensus and, and the democracy promotion community in the 1990s. So, so, you know, I'd love to hear what, what that sort of alternative path forward would have been if not through EU and NATO membership and through those sort of reforms that were undertaken back then. Yeah, the IMF Washington consensus air quotes is much maligned, but it also seems that I don't know what the alternatives would be in most cases too. That would be drastically better results. Right. People sometimes have this idea that uh, a more gradual path would have been preferable, that this rush to liberalize and privatize everything and, and to try to like impose hard budgetary constraints led to unintended consequences, and it did lead to unintended consequences, but, but we have, have to consider what the counterfactuals mm-hmm. were, and in places where state-owned enterprises lingered on and where uh, distortions were put were, were kept in place what they ended up with uh, were these sort of frozen situations in which cronyism and theft and corruption run rampant like you know ukraine did not follow the path of radical reforms and did not liberalize prices of some commodities and and it just ended up in a in a in a disastrous shape as a result mm-hmm. While we're on Hungary and Poland, though, on this, isn't there some concern that are, it seems to me that people are, are concerned with globalism is that it's anti-democratic in certain ways? And, and certainly people point to a lot of the more pro-globalism voices are often critical of Poland and Hungary. But isn't it also the case that the Law and Justice Party, for example, in Poland is, is immensely popular there? Law and Justice Party is popular. Uh, Viktor Orban is popular. And and you know you can agree or disagree with with their views on the European Union and globalism versus nationalism. But like my beef with these two parties is is somewhat different. It is that they have started moving their respective countries on the road to authoritarianism. And I think in the case of Hungary, it's pretty pretty clear cut. This is a country that is a hybrid regime in which it's close to impossible for political opponents to compete on a level playing field and raise money and get access to media. Therefore, democratic institutions and elections and and the sort of normal attribute of democracy in Hungary are largely a facade for uh, for a system that's that's very tightly centralized and that's very effective at cracking down on dissent. And and what can the European Union do to try to fight back against that? So one of the things I explain in the book is is that international organizations need to strengthen their immune systems, so to speak. In in many ways, and you see that in NATO with Turkey, and you see it in the European Union. With, with countries like Hungary and Poland, it's very difficult to get into the club and you have to jump through lots of hoops to get into the club. Uh, but once you're in, it's impossible to either kick you out or, or to sanction you effectively if you, if you do misbehave. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a conundrum with, it's a real problem with, with, with Turkey right now. Like, you know, are we committed to the defense of, of Erdogan's regime or not? And if we are not, now, where do you draw the line and what does that mean for other allies? There is no like explicit mechanism for dealing with situations like this. The EU does have an explicit mechanism, but it's one that's not very effective because it relies on the unanimity of all the other member states. Mm-hmm. So the Article 7 procedure will always be sabotaged as long as there is more than just one country that is on this, on, on, on this trajectory. One idea which I think is a good one, uh, which has been proposed as part of the new multi-annual financial framework by the previous European Commission is to tie the disbursement of EU funds to certain metrics of rule of law. So in case countries do get into trouble the way Hungary and Poland has, I think there is 
a case for stronger monitoring of 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 of, of these funds that that are dispersed. These countries are also among the largest recipients, certainly in per capita terms. Mm-hmm. Of, of of EU funds and especially in the Hungarian case this has been leveraged very effectively by Fidesz into the system of patronage and and, and, and cronyism that builds sort of support for, 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 for the party and I think it's a real question but that European taxpayers should be underwriting this. How do you feel about continued EU expansion? Um, specifically I know right now I think they're talking about Macedonia and mm-hmm. Albania. At what point is it just too much and you, and Normal EU citizens won't benefit from this. It was a striking decision by uh, by Emmanuel Macron last week to to put an end on further enlargements. Uh, it's a very controversial step. My my take on that is the following. So, so on the one hand, I do have a degree of understanding for the French position because when you look at Hungary and Poland, there is a sense in certain circles in Western Europe uh, that maybe enlargement went ahead too rapidly and too recklessly and we didn't really think about the possible consequences and what if we bring in countries that will end up on these sort of backsliding trajectories Uh, and I think the risk in the Balkans is real of that happening and therefore scrutiny is is in order but the wholesale sort of stop to to enlargement I think sends sends the wrong signal to to, to EU's neighbourhood Europe I think is worth Remembering that Europe is not doesn't have hard power, doesn't have many mechanisms of of engagement with its allies, uh, with its with its neighbors, and its ability to to inspire and 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 inspire countries to to emulate the Western European liberal democratic model or whatever you want to call it, has been one of its strong sides and and so so to say that we are not going to do that as a european union that we are not going to enlarge further i think that 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 to me is tantamount to a unilateral disarmament of 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 the eu in the face of very competitive regional powers whether it's turkey whether it's russia i mean russia already is present in the balkans is offering all sorts of trade agreements with the eurasian union to these countries uh russian influence in serbia is is significant and i think eu the way this step by the EU is red in the Balkans. It's it's sort of you know the EU has lost interest, and maybe we have to look elsewhere. And I think that's a very dangerous precedent to 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 to, to set. Meanwhile, the EU has been involved in this three-year-long divorce process with yep. Britain. For one shining moment, it looked like it might finally all be over. Boris Johnson yep. passed the withdrawal agreement, and then it looked like Macron was going to lobby for just a technical extension where they let Parliament pass the agreement, and it's finally done and over with. Now we have to wait till January thirty-first. Why does the why did the EU extend all this way, and who do you who do you put the primary blame on for this process taking over three and a half, almost three and a half years now? Look, um, when the referendum took place, people voted fifty two forty eight for leaving the European Union, but they did not necessarily vote for the same sort of Brexit, right? Like Brexit did mean different things to different people, and I don't think at that time there was a real deep appreciation of the trade offs involved. If you leave without an agreement, you are going to cause a lot of economic disruption to the British economy, to the European economy. Maybe you'll retake control in some abstract sense, but it will come at a price. Mm -hmm. If you move from the European Union to join the European economic area like Iceland and and Norway, uh, you'll create far less economic damage, if any economic damage at all, but then you'll just become a rule taker. You'll lose your seat 
in, in, in Brussels when the decisions are being made and and then you'll just end up accepting whatever legislation the EU comes up with. I mean, Norwegians are not necessarily terribly happy about about being in that position. And I don't think the British public and, and the political class really appreciated these these, these trade-offs. And and once a time came to, to make the actual decisions, as long as there was this possibility of kicking the can down the road, I think most MPs uh, took the easy way out and, and just decided to kick the can down the road. So I did a piece last week in which I argued that actually having a, a hard stop would have been helpful because it would help to focus people's minds and, 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 and would force a reckoning of some sort, you know, whether it's for Boris Johnson's agreement or for Brexit without an agreement or for, for, for just calling Brexit off. And I worry uh, going forward that after the election, we might end up, the UK might end up with a you know, similarly composed parliament and, and, and this question will uh, present itself new in January and will be just as intractable as, as, as it was two weeks ago. There's a funny tweet the other day that was like, the year is 2150. The British Prime Minister just completed another trip to Brussels where it begs for an extension. Nobody knows where this bizarre tradition came from, but everybody knows yep. it's been yep. going on yep. for as long <laughs> as possible. Do, I mean, does Boris Johnson deserve a round of applause here for actually getting a passable deal done? I have to say that that I have sort of updated my beliefs about Boris Johnson upward, so to speak. Um, so on, in substantive terms, his agreement is not that different from, from Theresa May's agreement, unless you really care about the technical details of customs arrangements in Northern Ireland. And I know that this question, like in Northern Ireland and for, for, the, for the peace process, there, there is an importance to this. But I don't think that's what the ordinary voters and ordinary MPs care about that much. And I think the difference between Boris Johnson and Theresa May is precisely the sort of salesmanship and the ability to push the right sort of buttons. So now there is a deal which, given Britain's, UK's red lines, is as good as it gets. And I think to some extent, Theresa May's deal was as good as it got under 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 the UK's red lines. Yet there seems to be a momentum in his favor in, 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 in the core of public opinion. Like we'll see how the election will end up going. But I mean if he can pull it off, maybe he'll re he'll be remembered for, for other things. Maybe he'll be remembered for a successful premiership rather than for you know the blatant lies he was he was he was telling the public during the 2016 referendum campaign. So, so, so I think we should not underestimate him at this stage. Yeah, Maybe so I did that in the past. <laughs> where where do you think the election will, will go? It seems so bizarre. I just as an American outside observer, I follow this somewhat closely. Mm-hmm. In 2017, Theresa May talked about winning like a 50 to 100 seat yep. majority for their conservatives. Ended up losing the majority that they had. Now it seems like the conservatives are a little bit worried they might not get a majority at all. Or, I mean, is there any hope that they get that elusive, like, 50-seat majority that Theresa May thought they could get in 2017? It's, I think it's very much an open question. So when you look at just, like, the average polling numbers, different polling agencies would give you slightly different numbers, but it looks quite good for conservatives mm-hmm. at the moment. The problem is that this is a winter election. Campaigning in these bleak autumn, winter months is, is, is not fun. It's also true that Labour has a more energetic base. Uh, I think there is a real following among young people for that, that Jeremy Corbyn has created for himself with his radical far-left agenda. And, and, and maybe conservatives will actually find it difficult to, to keep up with that. So 
So, so I, I don't think the current numbers are telling you necessarily what 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 the what, what the outcome is going to be. Like labor, you know, is labor going to be the majority? Probably not. But it's I think very easy to imagine that labor and liberal democrats will be able to prevent conservatives from from gaining majority. Yeah, and now there's the word that even if the conservatives win a bunch of seats, the DUP is not going to support them anymore because the DUP is not happy with Boris's New Deal. So I mean, right. what what would happen if? Like the SNP and the Labour Party and the Lib Dems get enough seats to, and this so-called Remain Alliance wins. Would Brexit then be cancelled? Do you think? I mean, th- that seems like that was this would just delay the process forever. I know this is all speculation. One one possible scenario is that that coalition would put uh, the possibility of, of of a second referendum on the table again, which would probably require another extension, and I think would would just embitter the debate in the UK like beyond what we can currently imagine uh, so it's not necessarily although I thought that Brexit was, was was a bad idea to begin with and the first referendum was a bad idea to to begin with these attempts to 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 just delay it or stop it at this stage might be susceptible of doing more harm than good to shift topics again yep. China can't talk for 30 minutes about foreign policy issues <laughs> without mentioning China how unified is Europe falling, you know, the US and Europe together? How unified is this in confronting China? China has been uh, very actively present in Europe. And I think China has been successful at leveraging the disunity of the continent. So none of the European nations can sit at the table with the Chinese as, as, as equals. Brussels potentially could do that, but it doesn't have the mandate to do it. And it lacks the sort of leadership needed to to present a common European agenda, and that's what Beijing has been has been using to its to its fullest possible advantage. And you see that with uh, Italy signing up for for Belt and Road, and many other countries really flirting with with with, with further Chinese investment and encouraging it. And and, and the Chinese, I think, I've, the regime is very astute about uh, using. A relatively modest economic presence in Europe to create an impression of of, of these extraordinary opportunities in, in in Eurasia to the east, where whereas really economic partners that that, that Europe has uh, in Asia, like you know, say, say Taiwan or South Korea, are typically much more significant in terms of investment than 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 than, than China is yet. China has been very good at picking sort of high profile projects and, and, and creating a lot of buzz, a lot of publicity around them with the purpose of then extracting political uh, sort of political advantages for, for itself and, and, and exercising leverage over European governments. And this will likely continue. And I think there's a strong case for Americans and Europeans getting their act together and responding. Europeans need American leadership in this regard. And also America needs Europe, which is sort of united and understands its strategic interests with regard to China better than it currently does. Sounds like we just need a European basketball association to tweet out support for Hong Kong. And then China, <laughs> and then China will want nothing to do with them. All right. I think we're out of time now. Dalibor, thank you for coming back on. Thank you. As always, thank you all for listening. We'd like to remind you that episodes of Banter are available every week, usually on Wednesdays or Thursdays, sometimes Tuesdays. We like to keep you on your toes. You can also email us at banter at AEI.org with any thoughts. Also, please like us, rate us, leave us a review. We got two reviews on iTunes this past week after our Kim Strassel episode. One of them was a one-star review where it was titled, The Place to Go for Massive Bias. Now, this person named A Random John says, 
the Kim Strassel episode was enough to get me to leave a review. Finally, we asked you every time. <laughs> it consistently seems like these guys live in a mirror universe, but this conversation was outrageous. There is no introspection, no pushing back, and mockery of stuff they don't even pretend to understand. Actually, have a comment. Should on we that. respond to a random John? I mean, fair, I guess, <laughs> to an extent. <laughs> I mean, we, we, I mean, I'm not going to say, I don't want to claim that this is an unbiased podcast. We don't hide the fact that we both come from a conservative point of view. And obviously, most people that we interview are more on the conservative side. But I'd like to think that we do give a perspective to everybody. As we said, Andrew Yang is more than invited on the podcast whenever he wants. As are all the other Democratic candidates. As all. But what, what I would say here is that, I mean, what we are talking about here, to me, there's, there's, you know, you can obviously debate Trump to no end and how his behavior is and the impeachment proceedings. You can debate that as long as you want. In terms of her argument that, you know, Trump haters are taking a negative toll on the country, I I mean You agree. Maybe <laughs> maybe you're in a mirror. Universe. Dare I dare I dare I say I think many of them are. And I think, you know, you could have a more nuanced we probably could have a, had a more nuanced argument well, we, about it. But. Yeah, we definitely could have focused more. I mean, and like we did we did bring up like Trump's more outrageous things he's done, like that Helsinki press conference talking about Kim Jong un like he's a dear friend when he's running a the worst gulag state. Well, Maybe second worst to China. I mean, Trump does a lot of horrendous stuff that we didn't focus on, that we could have probably yeah. could have spent more time. Well, I think we're trying to focus here on her book, which is about how Trump haters are destroying America. So. Yeah, we're nothing if not polite and hospitable <laughs> to our guests. All of our potential guests, you now know that we treat you very well. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I will say we got that one star review. We also got a five star review. We did a five star review from Albrecht94, a policy nuts dream, five stars. If you are really into policy but hate the back and forth of politicians, this podcast is for you. Yes, it often simplifies issues, but that's necessary to keep you engaged and inspire you to learn more. This is a fun, interesting, and thought-provoking podcast, perfect for your drive to work or a half hour on the treadmill or when you're bored at work. Well, thank you very much, Albrecht94. I will say that... Uh, that Matt you wrote that review? Uh-huh. That you wrote that review? <laughs> I did not write that review. I really appreciate that. Um, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to have some fun here. We're trying to bring the policy issues into your eardrums, which is what we're doing. Yeah. And we're glad that you enjoy it and learn something from it because yeah. all these politicians, yeah, you know, <laughs> you can't really trust them. No, can't trust. You can trust <laughs> us, not them. Also, I don't. I, I almost forgot. I can't believe I have some bragging rights here. If you remember last episode, I correctly predicted the Nationals would win the game with Strasburg and then go on, and Max Scherzer would make a return in Game Seven. And they would win that too. That is just what happened. We made a bet. Max is actually not even supposed to be on the show anymore. <laughs> he said that he would leave the show. Let me bring in a guest host for an episode if that happened. Haven't decided who the who my uh, replacement will be yet. But I was right. You were wrong. And Scherzer, you know, he didn't have the best game. They hit him well. He gave up a lot of hits, but held him to only one or two runs. And Nats got the curly dub. It was great. It was great. I, 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 was, I, was, I was happy it happened. I was wrong. I was a hater. Yeah. I was a hater. Sadly, of which there are many. Yeah, there are many. But no, go Nats. Go Nats. They've, I'm a fan. They've proved the haters wrong. They have. Plenty of room in the... Although, bandwagon, people are hopping off pretty quick. Did you see that uh, Kurt Suzuki, their catcher, wore a Trump hat, or Make America Great Again hat at the White House the other day? No. He had the... Like, a bunch of the players went to the White House, as teams usually do. Not all the players went, but uh, Ryan Zimmerman... UVA grad went up there and said wanted to thank Trump for all he's doing to make America great again. And then really? Su- then Suzuki, yeah, the Japanese American catcher that they have, walked up to the podium with a MAGA hat on and was proceeded to be canceled by Twitter. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and a random John, you may hate me for this. <laughs> if he's still listening. This stuff, this stuff, 
Look, the dude's the president. He comes to the game and he gets booed by the entire audience of, like, Beltway people. Mm-hmm. It's just so, like... He's the president. Is that wrong of me to say that you should show the president a little bit? It, I wouldn't... You know, if Elizabeth Warren goes in there and is sitting there at the game, I would never boo her. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, maybe it's not a fair comparison. But, I mean, these people have been booing him whether or not the Ukraine stuff happened. They're booing him because they disagree with his politics. And I feel like at one point, he is the president. Let's have a little civility. Here. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Maybe this is just my, like, you know, conservative closet monar- monarchist tendencies <laughs> coming out that I just crave a king to bow down to. But I, I totally agree. I think the office of the presidency deserves a lot of respect. And you don't have to like him. I don't really like him. You don't have to boo him either. I mean, I didn't. Again, pe- people are going to say that, oh, well. You don't boo Obama. You're not going to boo Elizabeth Warren because they're totally different. Like they're going to raise your taxes. They're not going to put people in cages or commit treason by selling out our interest to the to Russia or something. Which I mean, that's what they're going to say. I don't agree with that comparison, but the people are going to say we're making a false equivalency between the abnormal, this is not normal times comparison of Trump to the relative normality of like a Obama Warren presidency. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, you know, people. Trump haters are going to destroy America. <laughs> uh, Trump haters are going to hate Trump. I don't like him. You know, there's many, many, many people I'd rather be the president. Many, 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 many people I would rather be the president. Two of them are sitting in this room. <laughs> two, two of them are in this room. But at the same time, you know, I know like I wasn't at the game because I'm not a Nats fan. But if I <laughs> and you don't have five hundred dollars, I don't have I don't have eighteen hundred dollars for the tickets I would have wanted to buy. But if I were there, I mean, come on, I just think enough. Let's move on with it. Let's enjoy the game. Let's not hate Trump. If pe- like people want to go, you're going to cancel a dude for going to see the president. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. No, I agree. I totally agree. But whatever. On that rant. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Who do we have next? Next, we've got Mike Giglio. Next week, we've got a, <laughs> next week we've got a war correspondent from The Atlantic who has a new book out about ISIS. He was embedded with the soldiers fighting ISIS in Syria and Iraq. The book is very exciting, very interesting, especially relevant again now, given that everyone's talking about Syria again. And that the ISIS leader is dead. Yeah. and so that, he, I mean, he'll probably have good things to say on what that means for ISIS yeah. going forward. So we're looking forward to that conversation. This is somebody who's actually spent some time and has gotten their hands quite dirty with the stuff that we're all too scared to even think about. Over with the here, blood you know. of terrorists. With the blood of terrorists. So we respect that. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> we would never boo him. No. Uh, some of you might. <laughs> um, okay. So with that, we will leave you to next week and we look forward to seeing you then.